seated. This morning our reading is going to be from Ezra chapter 9, and um, I got a message a few weeks ago that Pastor Dave Crone was going to be speaking on Nehemiah on Thanksgiving, so in preparation, no, I'm making that up. The Spirit coordinated that because I didn't know, but I think it ties in together quite well. So if you would like to turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9, um, we'll begin there, but before we do, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Make us to know your ways, O Lord, to teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all day long. Amen. Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and have mingled with the holy race, mingled the holy race with the people around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled the hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. God of Israel gathered around me, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifices. Then at the evening sacrifices, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn, and I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance." 
What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserve and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your command again and intermarry with the people who commit detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. May God bless the reading of his word. The title for today's message is called Thanking God for Deliverance. And this comes from question and answer two of the Heidelberg Catechism. What must I know to live and die in the comfort of knowing that I belong to Christ? I must know three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sin and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. In our text this morning, we read about God's faithfulness in preserving a remnant for himself in Israel. Even after the temple was destroyed, the Israelites were taken captive. Cyrus showed mercy to the Jews by allowing whoever wanted to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple to go. He also returned the valuable items that were taken from the temple as loot under King Nebuchadnezzar. Reading the book of Ezra can be confusing because there are several kings mentioned and a lot of difficult spellings and names that are unfamiliar. There's also lists of valuables that seems incomplete when we compare it to other parts of the Bible. But let's spend a few minutes now to familiarize ourselves with the plot. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon captured Jerusalem in 597 BCE and exiled many of the people of Judah to Babylon. Babylon was then captured by the Persian Empire under the authority of King Cyrus in 539 B.C. During that first year, Cyrus allowed all of the exiles of Jerusalem and Judah to return home if they desired. After a group of pilgrims led by a man named Zerubbabel began construction of the temple, they immediately faced opposition. They had a bunch of local enemies. These enemies halted progress by sending a letter to the new king of Persia, King Darius, telling, that, telling him that these Jews had a history of being troublemakers and they should not be con- allowed to continue their work because they didn't have permission. After King Darius' secretary of state did some digging in the archives, he upheld the decree that was given by King Cyrus, and the work was allowed to continue. This type of strategy used by their enemies was used against the Jews under both Xerxes and Artaxerxes, but both these kings stood by Cyrus' decree. The second temple was was completed on 12 March 515 BCE, almost 70 years after Solomon's temple was destroyed. 
After the construction was complete, a teacher who was well-versed in the law of God, the Torah, named Ezra, also went to Jerusalem to teach these pilgrims there. When Ezra arrived in Jerusalem, he was appalled at what he discovered. After God faithfully returned his holy people to their land, they had the audacity to mock him in their sinful living. In many ways, the story of Ezra is a retelling of the story of Moses. God's people find themselves as slaves. They are at the mercy of a king in a foreign land. After gaining permission to leave, they receive the riches before they depart. And during their time of captivity, God's people did not observe the covenant requirements and were not living up to the holiness to which they were called. Remember that to be holy is to be set apart for God's purposes. When the Israelites fled Egypt, God revealed his law to Moses at Sinai. Again, the law was read to the people at the end of their wandering before they crossed into the promised land. And here we learn of Ezra, a teacher of God's law, returning to the land of his ancestors, to the holy city, only to discover that those who were called to be set apart as God's people were living in egregious sin. The people of Israel, including the priests and Levites, have not kept themselves separate from their neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. The priests and Levites had the responsibility of upholding the holiness of God's people. They were to be the primary exemplars of Israel's to Israel on how they were to live and conduct themselves. Ezra tells us that there was no distinction between them and the rest of their world. It was not evident by how they conducted their daily lives that they were any different from those around them. What were they doing that was so appalling? Verse 2 says that they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and having mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. The people of God adulterated their holiness by treating the profane and the sacred without distinction. And to top it off, it was the leaders of this community who paved the way for the people to live in sin. Ezra was wrecked by the unfaithfulness of God's people. Verse 3 explains that Ezra had a visceral response to what he witnessed. Do you know what a visceral response is? A visceral response is an automatic, sympathetic response to a specific stimuli. It is something that happens without effort or thought. One time, when I was younger, I fell asleep with some mint chewing tobacco in my mouth. And when I woke up, I puked. And puked. And puked. And for years afterward, whenever I smelled that smell, I wanted to puke some more. It has been burned into my, my, my brain. It is a visceral response. I have no control over that. There was another time when I went to Chicago, and after learning that 
the delicious hot dog that I enjoyed was actually made of horse meat. I had a similar type of response. (laughs) Simply knowing that it was horse meat caused me to be queasy. These examples help us to understand what Ezra was feeling, but they are inadequate. Ezra was appalled. The Hebrew word means devastated, embarrassed, and angry. It is a holy indignation. Like Jesus' righteous anger when he overturned the money changer's table in the temple. This is a fire-in-the-belly kind of a feeling. Like when an adult confesses for the first time in his life about the physical, sexual, and emotional abuse that they experienced as a child. There is a righteous anger that overwhelms your heart because you are so disgusted by what has occurred. You hear it and you want to kick and scream and wail. Your heart aches because what has happened is such an affront to the way things are supposed to be. That is what Ezra is feeling in verse 3. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled the hair from my head and beard, and sat down, appalled. His actions must have gotten their attention. They were cut to the heart over what they had done. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifices. Ezra revealed to the Jews what the Catechism invites us to be aware of. How great their, how great our sins and misery are. We'll leave this story here for now, and we'll consider another group of pilgrims and their experience. Last month, we commemorated Reformation Day. And most often, we think of the Protestant Reformation, we think of people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, or it's Zwingli, and the like. Their bold adherence to the truth of God paved the way for reforms to take place in other places, too. When Henry VIII of England broke from the Catholic Church, part of his reform was to reduce the number of church holidays from 95, not including Sundays, to 27. One group, known as the Puritans, believed that his reform did not go far enough. These Calvinist Puritans believed that all holidays should be eliminated, including Christmas and Easter, and that the church should instead honor certain occasions with either days of thanksgiving or days of fasting. When it was believed that God was pouring out his judgment, they should fast. And when God had demonstrated his providence, they held a feast of thanksgiving. In 1608, many Puritan families who sought to reform the Church of England fled to the Netherlands to a religiously tolerant environment. The form of Puritanism that they practiced required them to live as separatists because they believed that the organized church was too far gone for reform. And as such, Their religious practice was now considered illegal. When this congregation of about 400 members discovered that the English crown had learned of their existence, they fled in the night 
with just the clothes on their back. And the only work that was available for them was menial and backbreaking. Things finally came to a head when Holland and England became allies against Spain. And this forced the Puritans to make a drastic decision. They were convinced that escaping to the New World, beyond the, re- the reach of King James, was the best and only course of action. So in 1620, the pilgrims fled. John Robinson was the pastor of these Puritans seeking to emigrate. He used the analogy of the ancient Israelites leaving Babylon to go build the temple in Jerusalem to encourage the Puritans in their own emigration. The group adopted this story as their own and referred to themselves as God's new Israel. They believed it was their manifest destiny to build a new Jerusalem in the Americas. They were leaving behind religious persecution, hoping to start a society based on Calvinist Puritanism, which would define clear lines between that which is common and that which is profane, that which is sacred and holy from that which is common. While the Puritan influence is significant in the founding of America, it is an overstatement to say that their new society produced long-lasting cultural change. Just like the Israelites failed time and again to live up to God's standard, so has American society. Have you looked around at America lately? I see people exchanging the truth about God for a lie. We are calling things that are wrong and perverse acceptable. We are living as if there is no distinction between that which is sacred and that which is profane. Friends, the Church of God is called to set the standard for holy living. And while it is good and right to read and understand God's law so that we know his expectation, we are powerless to overcome the problem of evil in this world in our own strength. Without a Savior, without someone who can defeat the power of sin once and for all, we are left in our sin and in our misery. When Cyrus decreed that the temple was to be rebuilt, he was declaring God's faithfulness to his people. The destruction of the temple was understood by the Jews as God abandoning his people because of their failure to keep the covenant. It had been so long since the temple was destroyed that they must have assumed that he had left them for good. When God allowed the temple to be destroyed and Israel to be scattered and taken as slaves, he was exercising his divine justice. And while human depravity is total, it is not absolute. That is, while all of creation is feeling the effects of our sinful world, it's not beyond redemption. We know that because we see God displaying mercy in the form of deliverance from slavery. We know this because he sent a leader to rebuild the community in Jerusalem named Zerubbabel. And out of his line, Jesus of Nazareth is born. We know that God has not given up on his people because he, is, because he has the temple rebuilt. 
And if the destruction of the temple is understood as God's judgment against Israel, then the rebuilding of the temple must be a sign of God's continued faithfulness to his people. But God's not content with building projects. God is more concerned with matters of the heart. We gain some understanding of God's heart through his law. God sent Ezra to the Jews to teach them his law. In making them aware of how great their sin and misery are, his intent was not to heap guilt on them. Rather, it was to help them identify their sin in order to repent from it and be reconciled to the one who made them in his image. After Ezra reminded the Jews that marrying outside of the Israelite community was out of bounds, they wept bitterly because of their sins, and they became aware of how great it was against God. They responded by first admitting to themselves and to each other and to God that what they did was wrong. Ezra 9.15 says, Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Next, the people selected certain men by family division to give an account for everyone who had violated God's law by intermarrying. And the final step that they took is a little uncomfortable. They sacrificed guilt offerings for what they had done and then made a pledge to put away their wives. This ending contains at least three elements that are quite unpopular in our cultural climate of today. First, God only selected a certain group as his people. Not all are elect. Second, it is advocating for segregation and racial racial purity. Finally, the community supports the decision for these guilty men to divorce their wives. And I don't want this to take over the main topic of our sermon today, but it's too radical to ignore. Suffice it to say that the principle that Ezra is communicating to the Jews who have re-entered the promised land is that God's demand for holiness cannot ever be met with compromise. You see, these Jews who became aware of their sins responded in a radical way out of the thankfulness in their hearts to God. What they were working toward was based in the law, but the motivation for their action was out of the gratitude in their heart for God delivering them. Church, the only proper response to God's deliverance is thanksgiving expressed by obedience. Jesus says this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Well, I hope you're aware that our pilgrim friends did make it to the new world. Less than half of the original survivors, or less than half of the original travelers survived their first year. Sickness, scarce supplies, and threats from natives and wildlife challenged their very existence. 
After their first winter, the pilgrims met Samoset and Squanto, two natives who taught them how to live off the land. The Puritans were motivated to create a new Christian society in the new world, hoping to save them. But ironically, it was them who needed the saving. God saved the Puritan community through the Native Americans. The city on a hill imagery never materialized for the, for the Puritans. However, that does not mean that their vision for a radically changed society had no effect. You see, God had his hand in this adventure from the start. He was with them when they fled at night to Holland. He protected them through the stormy seas. God preserved for himself a remnant which would eventually result in international recognition of his providence. In 1621, the Puritans, who worked to eliminate church holidays in favor of fasting and thanksgiving, held a feast of thanksgiving to God for the bountiful harvest they had and for seeing them through that first hard, long year. In the fullness of time, both Canada and the United States have declared national holidays to commemorate the way that God provided for the pilgrims. And last Thursday, we commemorated the 401st anniversary of that Thanksgiving celebration. How should we, as Christians, respond to such a day? First, we need to take stock of our blessings. How has God blessed you? With a job? With education? With friends? Family? Relationships? Food? Has he seen you through the storms of life? Maybe he has provided you with an Ezra so that you could confront the sins in your life. Maybe he provided you with a Samoset or Squanto to show you the right way to live. I have a hunch that some of you are facing some big challenges right now. It's hard to feel thankful when your heart is full of grief and fear and anxiety. And while I don't know the details of your circumstances, I do know what it's like to have a heavy heart. If that is where you are today, I want you to know that that's okay too. God loves us right where we are, even if it's in the mess, middle of the mess of this broken world. This is a season to reflect upon what God has done for us. And the most important thing that God has done for us is to lovingly pursue us when we are dead in our sins and our transgressions. When we take our minds off our own circumstances and simply surrender to the goodness of God's love, we can begin to accept the love that he so desperately wants to give us today. Friends, please know that I'm not trying to minimize any of your pain. Actually, I'm probably saying this more for my own benefit than yours. But I do know that God is sincere and he loves us. 
and he's also just. And we deserve the penalty of sin in our lives. But in his mercy, he fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and sets me free from the tyranny of the devil. So knowing that I deserve death for my sins and knowing how I have been set free from all my sin and misery, there's only one proper response. Out of thanksgiving to God, I am wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him out of obedience. Sometimes we find ourselves as pilgrims trying to leave behind the destruction and pain of our past, only to find that when we make our new life, the guilt, stain, and power of sin is still present. If that is where you find yourself today, I have great news for you. The hope of Advent is the promise of the new covenant. Under the former covenant, it was up to God's people to keep the law perfectly. And, of course, we know that's impossible. To atone for the guilt, the people had to constantly offer sacrifices. God promised that one day he would send someone to become the ultimate sacrifice for us. God promised to send someone to set things right when everything is wrong. God promised to make a new covenant that depends on his faithfulness and not ours. That hope is Jesus. He is the hope of Advent. If you're here today and you have not received the gift of salvation, I want to extend that invitation to you. This church, the angels, and God himself wants nothing more for you to accept his mercy and love. And if you've never made a decision to live for Jesus, please seek out one of the elders after this service. Let's pray. God of heaven, we praise you because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You take care of us when we are confused and lost and wondering what is going on in this world. We know that you know the end of the story from the beginning. And we're limited and see only the page that we're on. Help us to trust in you. Help us to recognize the blessings in our lives. Give us the hope that we need to continue to act out of love, out of gratefulness for what you have done for us. We ask that you heal our pain. Help us to learn from it grow our character, and deepen our love and our hope in you. With joy we praise you, gracious God, for you have created heaven and earth, made us in your image, and kept covenant with us, even when we fell into sin. 
We give you thanks for Jesus Christ, our Lord, whose coming opened up to us the way of salvation and whose triumphant return we eagerly await. Therefore, we join our voices with all the saints and the angels and the whole of creation to proclaim the glory of your name. Amen. I invite you to stand now as we sing a song of thanksgiving, Take My Life and Let It Be, number 288. 